What did you have for breakfast today? I didn't have a coffee. Really? Yeah. And that's the standard brekkie every day? Pretty much. Okay. Pretty Delish. much. Don't usually eat till about lunch. <laughs> I do the opposite of what everyone says to do. <laughs> What's, you know, the Iron Man diet. Everyone's going with it. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Welcome to the Uncommon Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Michaelides. The goal of the Uncommon Podcast is to build your worldly wisdom. And this worldly wisdom was coined by Charlie Munger, who is Warren Buffett's business partner. For me, it's about becoming a better investor, a business operator, and a well-rounded individual. Now, we do this by interviewing unique guests, investigating interesting topics, helping you to build this uncommon sense, as Charlie coined it back in the day. Our guests are wide. Some of those have included venture capitalists, strength coaches, bodybuilders, political activists, startup founders, business executives, chefs, restaurateurs, and rappers, to just name a few. Our style, you'll notice, is very much inspired by the likes of Joe Rogan, Charlie Rose, Oprah Winfrey, and Tim Ferriss. So it's sort of that investigative one-on-one style that we like to uncover with the guest. If you want to learn more about previous guests before we get into this episode, please just head over to www.neurale.com slash podcast. If you enjoy the episode, maybe consider leaving us a review and you can do that by heading to either iTunes or Stitcher on the web Search Uncommon Neural and it'll be the first podcast to come up. You can leave a simple review there. We'd really appreciate that. You should also consider signing up to our newsletter. I think 90% of our subscribed listeners are subscribed to the newsletter as well. That just means that you get priority access and show notes first up. You can do that just by heading to www.neural.com slash podcast. And also, don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, or Instagram. It's just at Neural on all of those platforms. We push out a lot of spliced content and and cool little sneak peeks for the episode that's coming up, so also consider that as well. In this episode, we have for you probably one of the most affable larrikins and satirists, Titus O'Reilly. Titus is a writer, comedian, podcaster, and commentator who obviously specializes in satire, but has this particular focus on sport, the AFL and entertainment. I find that Titus is your perfect marriage of the larrikin Aussie with a little bit of Douglas Adams, that sort of self-deprecating sense of humor peppered with undeniably dry wit. Um, And if you go on his Twitter and Facebook feeds, you'll just notice how dry and funny it can be at certain times. The late comedian George Carlin is known for saying that he loved sitting at the front row of the freak show of life, which is a great representation of Titus's musings. I feel that you will see Titus's particular focus on the AFL opens up a unique insight to 
I think the fabric of Australian society, as he put it. Uh, I think our collective obsession with sport and particularly, say, AFL and Melbourne could be described, as we spoke about, a, a religion. Titus's persona is adequately stated in probably one of the best piece of merchandise mugs I've ever seen uh, with with the quote, don't have faith in yourself, have faith in how bad other people are. And I think that really sums his whole moniker and, and persona. Uh, the discussion points that I think you enjoyed the most, um, who was Titus O'Reilly, we spoke about content distribution and being a content creator. We spoke about his creative process and how he writes. And then specifically about things like the AFL and the media circus, we spoke about the current state of my beloved Saints, the St Kilda Saints, and a little bit of Melbourne as well. And then, of course, footy, indoctrination, and belief. So if you enjoyed this episode, I think you'll also like uh, my previous chat with Chris Chincotta, and this is particularly focused on Melbourne and social media again, but also... Maybe check out Chevy Long, which was episode 17, and I spoke to another creative about entrepreneurship in the game that that he's operating in. If you want the show notes, as as ever, just head to neural.com slash podcast, uh, so you can check those out there. Um, but like I said, if you like comedy, if you like satire, if you like things that are a little bit funny, I think you'll love this episode. Um, so without any further ado or ceremony, please enjoy this chat with Titus O'Reilly. All right, Titus, we are live. Very good. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. Oh, anytime. Um, with any guest, I'd like to know, what, what do you think you're well-known for? Well, I don't, I don't know if I'm well-known, <laughs> <laughs> So, but I guess uh, basically making fun of the AFL and sport. Okay. <laughs> That's basically it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty small box. Yeah. Do you think you'll ever expand from that? Oh, definitely, like... I think uh, when I started, I actually did more pop culture and sport. Yeah. And then as it started to grow, the footy stuff sort of took over um, and I started to do less. But then there's always a thing where you think, I've been doing this five years, how how long can you make jokes about one topic? (laughs) So there's only so much you can do jokes about (laughs) AFL. Yeah. Uh, So I've done other sports a fair bit and then – you know, one, I think satire is a way of thinking, I guess. So if you think that way, you could really turn it to any subject. What, now, what do you mean by that, a certain way of thinking? Well, I mean, I, I sort of do satire. It's sort of sometimes satire and sometimes just it, satire. Is, people call me a satirist, I think, because it's easy. So people yeah. like to have an easy label. But some of my stuff's satire and some of it's just silly. So it's not <laughs> trying to be particularly clever it's if there's a joke there that i think's funny or something or it's purposely like i'll go off on a rant on like i was recapping a footy game the other week and went off on a rant about eating nachos so that's not really (laughs) satire yeah so it's you know i kind of think of it as they used to call mark twain a humorist and while i wouldn't put myself in the you know the same uh, tier as mark twain i always like that term humorist because it's a bit more broad than satire but I think all humour and particularly satire is you see the world in a certain way which is I think you sometimes see the world the way it is not the way people would like it to be yeah and you get frustrated by that (laughs) you know and I often think you see 
actions, not necessarily words, is a simple way to describe it. Yeah. No, I, I like what you're saying because I've always been – I mean – it's not so much that satire is the best form for it, but I just find that comedians and funny people in general are just so good at paring back the reality of the situation. Like I, lo- I used to love George Cullen. Yeah. I don't know if you know yeah. George Cullen, but just that they're literally, they've taken the same thing that you would say in a few different words, flipped it a bit, and it's just made you realize how ridiculous this scenario is. Yeah. And it, it is getting to the nub of something. Yeah. So the, the best comedy does that really simply. It's just spot on truth. And you can do it in humour because it's less conf- confrontational when truth is often quite confrontational. So um, that's the thing, you know, like that's the way you can sort of dress it up. You can sort of say it in a funny way, but really the best humour is also really cutting through the layers to the truth of existence, basically. Exactly. It makes you realise you're just a monkey sitting on a rock flying through. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, it, and and inherently at our core, humans are silly animals. <laughs> we're silly group animals that pretend we're uh, intelligent individuals, but we're not. Yeah. And so we kind of, that's, and I include myself very much in that. We all are like that. And that produces a lot of silliness. Yeah. Is there any reading or people in particular who have influenced you to have this perspective? Uh, not, I mean, I, it's hard to know because, you know, am I drawn to that kind of humour and that type of writing or reading or, um, you know, watching various comedians that I like because I'm already predisposed to that way of thinking or, um, you know, or have they influenced me? I, I think... I come my come from a family and come from, uh, you know, my way of thinking's always been a bit sort of this way, and then I've gravitated to comedians that sort of do that. Like everyone, you know, we all like to think we're being incredibly clever in our choices, but we tend to be drawn to things that we already think. Yeah. So if you think a certain way, it's true. Yeah. You sort of end up reading all the stuff that sort of validates <laughs> that white view of the world. So you're drawn into the light of uh, the confirmation bias that the comedians, yeah. Really like. I mean, I would never read. I mean, I would never read an inspirational quote that someone puts on Twitter without rolling my eyes. <laughs> you know, I'm never going to necessarily. But then I see people who often achieve great things believing in that stuff. So I'm sort of like conscious that my own way of viewing the world is not. Always, you know, delivers great results. It's but but I it's the confirmation bias in me that I'm almost physically incapable of believing in those things. Yeah, that motivational quote thing reminds me. Of, I was listening to Joe Rogan's podcast recently, and he was talking about um, <laughs> what what have like motivational speakers ever done, right? But he spoke. Of, he had this quote for like motivation in general mm. being. Um, something sort of similar to bathing, you know, something that is nice that should be done regularly but not too much. Not essential. Yeah. It's not the essential thing to life. Something along those lines and I just thought that was quite – because, you know, you when you're getting motivated, you, you get in the mood, you're going to go do your thing and then you're sort of back to where you were unless you put in some concrete steps. Yeah, well, I mean, motivation is a bit – you know, even if you're the most motivated person in the world about something, unless it's an addiction, uh, the motivation will wane over time. So you have to kind of have some method to either 
drive it forward so you keep doing it, whether that's external pressure, you need the money or you've got deadlines or other people demanding it or you have to, you know, they're just being super keen to do something tends to not last forever the way you know humans work is we tend to get bored we tend to get used to it you know and that's the way it sort of works so you see that happen in relationships you see that happen in people's work you know people start jobs and it's the greatest job ever and five years later they hate everyone there and can't wait to leave so yeah motivation is a finite resource and i think relying on it on its own is a mistake i think you're right i think as humans it's like the air conditioner analogy we're sort of always like you know you can go up and down to increase the temperature but at the end of the day it's just this constant well all the studies show that it's like when someone you know they they've found consciously with happiness that people end around a certain point no matter almost what happens to them whether they win tats lotto or whether they become paraplegic yeah things that think people think would either end like ruin their life forever or make it infinitely better yeah we're hopeless judges of that and people tend to return to a fairly set point i mean i'm i'm sure there are differences so if you've got a chemical imbalance in your brain and you manage to take some medication that that rebalances you that that will make a big difference you know that's sort of returning you to a a more realistic set point that might have been skewed by chemicals but the rest of the time that's sort of what it is and you know this you meet miserable people who always complain about the same things yeah yeah if you if you're deviating from the average you've probably got something wrong either something wrong or you have i guess you have brief moments where life's going pretty well you know You, you look at I'm uh, trying to think of a public example, but you look at someone like Jesse Hogan who plays for Melbourne. He's had his father passed away from cancer. He had mm. testicular cancer and then he just broke his collarbone all in the space of about six months. Now, <laughs> you wouldn't expect him to be thinking life is wonderful at the moment. you yeah. know. So li- life does test you and some people go through life with uh, you know everything going pretty well for them yeah. and others don't. So I'm sure that has some impact, but I think it's like we were saying about the air conditioner, it's it moves your the needle a bit either way of a set point, not completely changes things. Yeah. Now back to the the footy. Who is Titus O'Reilly? Uh, well, Titus O'Reilly <laughs> is. I mean, it, it people are. It, it started off for me as I started writing just as a creative outlet, a blog, and for the blog, a Twitter account. And I thought I'd do it for about two weeks and uh, five years later I'm still doing it. Now I do – so it's all comedy and um, it tends to be mainly sport-related. I've occasionally done other stuff but mainly sport-related, mainly predominantly AFL but cricket and other sport as well. And uh, I do – now I do uh, Nova FM here in Melbourne on breakfast. I've got a segment there. I do Channel 7 fairly regularly. Uh, I do live stand-up shows. I'm about to do a tour around the country. I've uh, just written a book, just finished a book, um, which is coming out just in time for Christmas. What's, do you have a title for the book? It's a highly unhelpful guide to Australian sport. <laughs> so it's a history of Australian sport but told in a – it's factual but told in a satirical take basically, yeah. finding the humour in it. Um, more the how sports evolved and the business of sport and everything rather than the – this guy kicked this goal and this person ran this fast. It's more the, the the broad, why is AFL popular in the southern states? Why is New South Wales its league, etc.? Okay. So I just finished that. So, yeah, just it's working on a whole ba- range of creative things and basically trying to make people laugh is <laughs> <laughs> the main thing. Well, why did you go for the early 20th century uh, persona? 
Well, I, I, I kind of always liked that sort of style, but it was more, it wasn't a conscious decision, a lot of the things that have worked out really well. So people often say about the name and the look and the feel of it all, they think it's a very premeditated, clever thing. <laughs> um, and I'd love to take credit and say it was, but when I was setting it all up, I, I wasn't looking to the long-term future. It was a creative outlet for me to just do something and with no one really I wasn't trying to be anonymous I wasn't you know I wasn't trying to hide behind anything I I didn't think anyone would care so it wasn't like a conscious thing it was just a chance to do something on the side that was almost just for me and if one or two people found it interesting it would be good yeah and so it started to grow so the whole thing with the image and everything was just an image I found I liked it was all (laughs) you know so there was all these things and that from that it lended itself to a whole bunch of other uh a whole bunch of other kind of inform the rest of the design as it started to get popular I suddenly had to start thinking about these things yeah and from that it sort of all just grew and I guess over the first year of doing Twitter and a blog you kind of find your voice which as they always say wankily Um, but you do you kind of find what works you kind of find what you're about and I didn't know that when I started because I hadn't written since high school and in a creative sense so I was one of those people that you know go into, does a lot of, you know, did, did an, uh, an arts degree, had done, you know, all the things people who aren't good at maths do. <laughs> so, you know, so I wasn't good at maths. I like reading and writing. So I thought, well, you know, went into that for career, ended up spending lots of time doing lots of writing and various things for people, which was all serious corporate writing. And after a while you suddenly realise, I got into this because I liked creative writing and was good at writing, but I haven't written anything for fun in... 10 plus years right you know i was sort of you're one of those people that get into your career and you suddenly go i'm only focused on my career i have no hobbies <laughs> i have <laughs> i had this realization yeah you know like i watch football and do a few things but i don't actually have anything like i don't do anything with my hands i couldn't change a light bulb i mean i can but you know like you know i don't really have much going on in my in the way of those things no outlet yeah so that's why i started and i wrote my first couple of pieces i remember writing were completely serious. So I'd liked a guy called Bill Simmons who is was at ESPN in the States and was a blogger who became a, a and still is a very well-known sports writer behind the website Grantland and The Ringer now and is a, signed, a, signed a deal with HBO and a few other things. Yeah, doesn't he, he, didn't he do a deal with uh, uh, Vox Media? Uh, like he that? did it with, um, yeah, was it Vox? I think he's done one with Vox. Before that he had it with Medium. Yeah. And then that sort of has fallen yeah. over because Medium have changed their business uh, approach, their business model. Um, and he signed with that, got to deal with HBO. And I think Vox are the new one that might host their their site. But um, And he, he sort of was more serious writer. I mean, he has pop cultural references and humour, but he's not a satirist. But I'd seen like him sort of do that. And so that was sort of a vague thing of, oh, it'd be fun to write like that, write about sport in a slightly different way. But even then when I started, I was I wrote a couple of very serious pieces. I can't even really remember them. And no one read them. Right. Like no one. But, and, yeah, because I was reading about this and what was the catalyst that made you decide to make it a bit funnier? Well, you know, because you don't think of yourself necessarily as funny some people do, but, you know, and I'd always liked joking around and funny things. And when I was at high school, I used to write funny things for people occasionally. But um, you, you didn't initially think of it that way. 
And so I'd written a couple of serious pieces that were like involved research and statistics and all this sort of stuff and took me like a couple of weeks to write and and they were boring as anything. And they were fine, but they just weren't particularly different. And then I was suddenly in a rush because we were, I was trying to get out one or two pieces a week as sort of a discipline to do it. Even though I wasn't taking it that seriously, I thought, knowing me, if I didn't stick to something like that, a week or two would go by and then it would be a month and then it would be six months and then I'd never have done it again. So I was trying to do one or two a week and I hadn't done one that week at all and I thought I should really <laughs> – get onto one, you know, I should write, better write something. And I thought, well, what can I do that requires very little research or effort? And um, I just had this idea about writing about, someone had mentioned about to me that week about how their son had was barracking for a different team than they were. So I wrote a piece and started off kind of semi-serious, but I ended up by the time I'd finished it, it was a humorous speech, which was the constant fear of raising a Carlton supporter. And it was just all about how you would indoctrinate your kids from birth and all this sort of stuff, you know. And so I put that up and I think because of the headline, like it was a funny headline and things on the net have to be either shocking clickbait or they have to be, you know, humorous for people to even click on them. I tweeted that out and suddenly I had, you know, not thousands of readers but it, it got read, you know. I don't know how it was, and it got shared, and people were saying this is great, and all that sort yeah. of stuff. So I started to just go, all right, well, I'll write some more like that rather than trying to be another, you know, jur- footy journo, basically. Yeah. Not thinking, well, this is going to be a career, thinking, well, that was fun. And as much as people like say they do creative things for the creative process, there's nothing like knowing someone's actually seen it. Or having people like it that kind of spurs you on to go, oh, I'll write another. And then from then I was just sort of hooked. It was both a great outlet of whatever I was annoyed about at the time. But then I started having people wanting fairly early on in small numbers but fairly early on like a vocal group that were like, can't wait to see your take on this issue or something. So it sort of forced you into writing things. When you were first doing that, did you have have people sort of giving you a nudge, like family or friends that were just like really liked or enjoyed that no, in particular? No, it's it, the thing I learned is because I often get people ask me, "Can you know, how did you do it? What do I need to do to be a <laughs> you know whatever?" Because you know, given a, the old model was if you wanted to write or do radio or be on TV. You know, the way the media worked is you had people who wanted to be like, as they call them now, content producers, so artists, whatever, and they never could control or afford possibly in the, you know, this is even going back only just 20 years ago or less, the the means of distribution was so expensive that you could never really do both. You had to, you know, so if you were an artist of any type, whether you wanted to do movies and acting musician, writer, uh, you know, whatever, radio host. The only way to get into it was to um, go work for one of those organisations. They would control distribution, they would control promotion, they would control ad sales, the whole bit, and they would just leave to you the content producing. And to do that, you probably had to start at the bottom doing whatever. Yeah. And you just had to hope eventually that, you know, maybe someone liked you enough, like the editor liked you enough to give you a column or let you write some big pieces or and if you were good that helped. And so that was the old way you had to do it. But now you can just start. You can just just set up your podcast, you can set up your blog, you can do all that from from get go. 
Yeah. So when people often ask me about that, it means you kind of have to motivate yourself though because it's amazing how few people will actually really motivate you. Not, yeah, and not so much motivated but just a, the ability to be consistent and continue and learn to iterate what you're doing. Yeah. Like I see a lot of people, you know, before I was even doing this, I had a blog for about 18 months and that was just me iterating my voice in my head, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's it's amusing and, and funny to see people and when they ask you questions, how did you get started or to see them start and just it always peters out after a certain amount of time, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I get all the time people say, oh, I've just started this new blog and love you to promote it. So that's the first thing they will write to me. And I'll go and look and they'll have like two articles up. And, and usually to be blunt, they're not very good, but then my first few weren't very good. Yeah. So it's not like a huge criticism because the great thing about starting a blog is you won't be very good and but no one will read it so it's kind of a nice people worry too much they're like i've got to have this perfectly set up when i start it yeah as and opposed they, to just getting out there. yeah that's an excuse not to start because you're not going to be good even if you wait six months only by doing do you i think get good yeah and uh you know, you'll spend the first six months just figuring out what to do and you'll get little signals of what works and what doesn't and then you eventually start to find what works and what suits you and you and by repetition you get better. So, you know, starting and then not continuing on is the – you have to f- become semi-addicted to it. Yeah. You have to really, like, be driven to do it, want to do it, enjoy doing it, enjoy the actual writing. I also see some people, like, I know a couple of people who write on footy and sport, and I can think of a couple. I won't name them to but not be mean to them because they're actually very good, who will produce one or two great blog posts every four months. Like, that's all they'll produce. Right. And they'll be great, you know, they'll be great what they write, but they put it out so sporadically that you, it's never going to be a job. Yeah, you can't you know, it's jump a hobby. on board. Yeah, yeah, you know. And I think the other thing that you kind of got to realise if you want to do this for a job, whether it's comedy or whatever it is, you know, any creative outlet, is you have to regularly produce stuff. I mean, it might be a bit different if you're doing high art you know the, the person that writes the one book every six years but it's a you know it's the greatest book ever or something you know the tortured artist and all that but you know even that's rarer now you kind of need to be able to regularly put out stuff um you need to be able to you know steve jobs used to say real artists ship which yeah. meant you know we didn't you don't just you know spend there forever trying to get it perfect you've got to at some point push it out to the public and so I've often had a discipline of putting out at least two things a week or, or written um, no matter what. So that way you kind of you, – you don't have the luxury, which you, a lot of people let themselves do with blogs, of going, well, I'll wait till something inspires me to write and then I'll write it. And that can often produce great work, but it's rare work. Yeah. You've got to be able to make it so you're always putting stuff out. And the, and the discipline there is that you've got to then make when you're tired and the last thing you feel like is writing is you've got to make that still an okay piece. Yeah. And it, you know, sometimes you know it's not your best piece. Yeah, I you, completely you know, agree. Yeah, it, your, your worst has got to be better, at pretty good. It reminds me of, I think what's really crucial to that is what they call the commitment and consistency principle. So, like, you've got to set yourself up to have something that you broadcast out there that is a thing 
like yeah. a titled thing. Like, for example, you've got, um, you know, the Highly Unhelpful Guide and the Monday the Knee Jerk Reaction. Yep. Yeah. So, by putting out those, you sort of give yourself a structured thing that you have to hit. Yeah. Every every week, and we've we've done it with the podcast. I know my partner when she wanted to build her portfolio, she went into that what they call a hundred day project. Yeah, she did a graphic every day for a hundred days. Yeah, it's the only way to do it because then people are like, "Oh, where's this thing?" Yeah, that's right. And it just inherently in the brain, you you've got to because we're social animals, you've got to commit to it and be consistent to it. It's a naturally human. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that that's probably the crucial thing. If people can like set up this, you know, structured identity to a certain post or whatever, that yeah. really really helps. Well, the other thing is we're we're hopeless judges of knowing what will work or be popular. So sometimes I'll write a piece and think, "This is genius. You've really done yourself here," <laughs> you know. But you do. You think, "Oh, this is not genius," but you think, you know, you think, "Oh, this is good. I'm really happy with this one." And you put it out and usually for me nowadays won't crash. It'll be like, go, okay, you know. And I'll go, oh, I thought that was a lot better than that. And then another time I'll be like, I'll rush something off in five minutes because the story's broken or – and I think that's okay. It's nothing – and that'll just go – be the one that just goes through the roof and people go, this is so clever or so <laughs> – and you're just like, really? Is that, I thought that was my worst piece I've done this month but it was the most popular and I got lots of – so you're just a terrible judge sometimes when you're close to it. And so if you didn't push yourself to put things out, you won't know yeah. um, and you won't learn. Now, sometimes I'll write something and think that's not that great and I'll put it out and it turns out it's not that great too. So it does – sometimes <laughs> you do have a good idea. Um, but that's kind of the thing you need to do and, and they can't all be winners and they're not all going to be brilliant and they're not all – but you kind of got to keep doing it because that's the thing. Yeah. You know, you got to – Keep shooting. You can't just <laughs> stop because you had a couple of bad ones, or you're not currently thinking. Because then you're just not doing anything. How did you come up with the highly unhelpful guide and the knee jerk? Well, the knee jerk reaction, which is when I wrap up the AFL round each Monday, um, the first one I did was I wrote as a complete. Um, and this is the thing about the difference between planning and just constantly doing stuff. So I just wrote a piece one week, you know, after like everyone reading the normal wrap-ups of the round, I was always shocked about how much of it was just complete knee-jerk reaction. So, you know, if a team lost on the weekend, even though they were maybe top of the ladder, everyone would go, oh, well, they obviously can't win the premiership or something. You know, it's just this huge massive overreaction. And so I wrote a joke piece, which was the knee-jerk reaction, where I went through each game this is the first time I ever did it and I just massively overreacted to each game you know so just said you know if the coach had lost I'd say this coach needs to be sacked even if it was like Alistair Clarkson or one of the best coaches in the league and when I put it out and it had this massive reaction you know people read it and shared it and then people said you should do this every week so then I just so I said oh okay because it had done so well and so I thought I might do this a couple of weeks and then people get bored, but it just kept growing as a thing in itself. And then it's more from just being a complete overreaction. It's more been, you know, me just, you know, writing a semi-serious, or not semi-serious, but, a, you know, a, a, I guess a humorous take on the the weekend of the of the footy of what's happened and 
go off on tangents at times or and it's become really popular so then it became then i was doing some stuff for the herald sun and they asked you know what can you do for us and so i said well i could always preview the round for you which became the highly unhelpful guide yeah. so i did that for them a couple of years and then yeah and still do that so now i've got the two and they sort of form the pillars of what i write each week yeah and they're about two thousand words each so you know they're a fair effort each week but um and that they'll be the main things I sort of write each week as a minimum. Okay. So. And and what are the other formats that you're doing? You've got the podcast. Yeah, I got a podcast um, that's out twice. We do that twice a week, and that's footy and sport more generally. And that's I do it with a guy called Sergio Paradise. And um, yeah, that goes out. We do it usually Mondays and Thursdays. So that's uh, you know, and that's been fun. That's been another thing to do and. You know, it was a change because you kind of look at it and I remember when I started doing that, you, 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 whenever you do anything, you get pigeonholed, like yeah. straight away. It's amazing how quickly you become pigeonholed. And so, and and this happens in all aspects of life, like it happens at people with their work, you know, the boss will always just see them as the numbers guy or the sales guy woman or something you know what i mean they always just put you in that box because it's just easy we all do it it's just very easy and so when i started the podcast everyone was like oh i like your writing but i don't think you're really a podcast guy or a radio guy and then that started to do well and then when i did tv people said the same and so it sort of then when i did stand up people said oh he's better at writing or whatever and then i find out people who don't really read my writing but will just listen to the podcast or have been to the stand-up or something. So it's all – it's funny how that all happens. Yeah, and you ca- you sort of capture different people. You get different audiences on different mediums, I find. Yeah, and, I mean, I still think writing's my core. Yeah. I still think writing's probably what I'm best at, you know, if I – but – I've probably also been doing it longer. So, you know, the other stuff is is fun to do. And then if you're going to make – any money out of creative stuff these days, you've got to do almost a bit of everything. Yeah. Well, so do you view yourself then as a writer or a content creator? Um, I don't know. If I, I mean, I probably I probably see myself as a writer slash comedian. Um, content creator is such a corporate term for yeah. You know, but what, like when I say that, I, I no, I know what you mean because yeah. it is a it is a term that's hard to get past. I guess what content creator means is yeah, you see yourself as, I mean, it sounds silly when you say it about yourself, but you see yourself as someone who's a creative person that creates things that people can consume. You know, so and the format is, I think, becoming increasingly irrelevant in a way like it used to be you know you just did books or you just did but you used to be able to do some of those things and make all your money from them so you used to be able to be a columnist or a journo and make all your money from writing yeah but increasingly you look at most of the journos losing their job there's about three or four journos that make anything near good money yeah and then the rest are all working not not well-paid gigs so you have this sort of so i think if you're going to be a writer or you're going to be something you suddenly got to add on other bits to your work to just survive yeah you spoke before about the the flip in the media industry to now what we call new new media really and it's just gone that the infrastructure behind it all is uh you know because you can distribute on uh you know, social media so easily. Yeah, that requirement is is so much more reduced, and it means that 
I feel like it's flipped towards people who are creating the content. So that's why it sort of seems that if you want to do well in this area, you've got to be across all these different mediums so that your different type of listener, viewer, reader can get you in different formats. And then monetizing now is it's so different for everyone, but you know, like people can have like sponsorship agreements or actual ads or whatever it may be. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit of the Wild West because it's not yet all worked out. So, if you go to most people and say, can you sponsor my podcast? Yeah. You know, you, you, you see in the States where they've even got bigger numbers because of the size where it's millions of people listening to Serial and, you know, all those, you know, whether it's Mark Marin or anything like that. Um, and the ads they have are not high-end ads. There's no. stamps.com and there's Audible, Audible and all this. And there's um, It's the same eight to ten people. Yeah, like, Squarespace so. and all that. And the reason they all have those is because they, they're big per- one-off purchases where they're or, or life, you know, long-term subscription models that, you know, make a lot of money. So, And they can track from the podcast by putting in the code when you sign up. They can do a direct advertising to things. So there's no brand, there's very, to almost no, even in the very best brand advertising or things like that on podcasts yeah. in Australia or America. Yeah. Even if you've got, like, it's pretty amazing that you get someone like Mark Marin who gets like a million downloads an episode and you don't have GM Motors or Coke or whatever sponsoring it. They yeah. won't put their money into it. And so in some ways that's why I say it's like it's all still incredibly new. Um, if you go on your website and everyone thinks a blog's going to make money, well, it won't. Even like even if you're getting tens of thousands, even up to 100,000, you will not make that much money off your writing. Writing to me I see like bands with their songs now. It's yeah. the entree to you doing other things. So you're almost giving that away semi-almost free in the hope that you attract enough fans to then go to a live tour or a book or a radio Exactly, gig. yeah, or like a for yourself, a, a tour or the book, whatever it may be. I, yeah. I feel like that's all this stuff is sort of all your brand but also marketing in a way to something that at the end, down the line, your 1,000 true fans or the, the, you know, the real people who really, really love your stuff yeah. will come and see you live yeah, or buy your book or That's whatever right. it may be, which is intriguing. It's going to – you're right. It's, it is the Wild West, you know, well, it's, five it, years from now. There's not a set path to even follow. So everyone does it in different ways. And, it, and I'm still like introduced when I do normal media or I do events and something. People say, oh, the Twitter guy. Which is fine, like I don't mind because that was how a lot of my stuff got started and things like that. But even when you've had it on radio and you've got a book coming out, you know, through Penguin Random House and I do Nova FM, which is mainstream and I've written for the Herald Sun, like you're still the Twitter guy because we're in this thing where that's an odd way to come become known. That's not the norm. But in 10 years, will anyone say that? Like I don't think many famous people in 10 years or creative people or anything will be not have come up through their own work and then got noticed because it's easier for the even the big media now. They look at uh, me, who's not even big compared to a lot of, you know, the states and even other people around. But, you know, and they look at me, I've got 150,000 Twitter followers and 55 Facebook followers and that, and they, they look at it and go, well, why give it to one of our interns when we can just hire this guy and he's already got the yeah. audience? Yeah. So that's the way of the future is 
is is that's how everyone's going to come through because yeah. you don't have to wait. And audience is everything as well. I yeah. Find. Like I've noticed, you know, particularly some people that I interview, just the, you know, you might have someone who has 200,000 followers but they've got no one that's really engaging them on these different yeah. distribution forms. But you might have someone who's got 100 to 150,000 but they've got an insane amount of people just engaging and that are really involved in what that that creator or that creative person is doing. Yeah. Well, the, where the rubber hits the road, to use a hackneyed phrase, is, you know, you can have, you know, it's when you go and actually then say, well, right, well, I'm going to do a live show and will I sell tickets? Because that's not just someone liking or retweeting or just passively following you. Yeah. That's suddenly where the reality of is anyone going to, are these people going to actually come and take a night off, get a babysitter or forego going or whatever and spend 50 bucks or whatever it is to buy a ticket and parking and Uber and taxi and dinner and all that sort of stuff and come and sit through you talking for an hour or an hour and a half. You know, so that's when you have things where it suddenly becomes can you do this as a real job or yeah. is it just a, a fun hobby? And that sort of hit you over the last year or so? Well, it, it's gone for me of being originally a – I wasn't trying to make money. I had a day job and it was so it was a pure creative fun outlet. And that was fine and good and but I wasn't trying to make any money whatsoever. And then suddenly, you know, once I started, you know, I got a book deal, so I had to, you know, write the book and I suddenly did a couple of stand-up shows and various things started happening. Suddenly you go, well, I'll have a go at making this work, but suddenly then it's a job. So suddenly then it's You've got to have these days. It's no longer like let's have an agent and they'll bring me all these money making ideas and or you know because it's very the newspapers have no money, the radio have it for a select few, um, and TV's even stranger. You know, they're, so there's no longer the days where people will just throw you a huge contract, you know, easily. And so a lot of it, especially if you're like me, which is got a big audience of his own but not necessarily a mainstream person you've got to then hustle all the time you've got to be the entrepreneur going right well i'll I'll write a book i'll go and pitch a book because that if i can sell a book to someone that's some money to get me through a few months yeah and then you go and maybe i'll try and sell a tv show maybe i'll try and do a live stand-up tour or maybe i'll you know do whatever so you've got to always be thinking about creating the next thing that you can kind of package up and and, and make it just to keep being able to do it. Yeah. So it's not necessarily like to make huge amounts of money, like you just focus singly on money. But if you don't do that, you can't do it full time anymore. You've got to go back to doing a normal job and doing it on the side. Yeah. I know. I noticed that you had a um, uh, a TV pod. Would you ever consider yeah. doing like YouTube videos? Yeah. Um, I, had a, I did a, a pilot with... Uh, Fox footy and they were really good actually they put a lot of effort into it and it just didn't quite get up I think it was close like they kind of liked it I didn't mind it they were a bit unsure I think of you know I wasn't a TV like there's the risk averse nature of I mean look my others might have a view that I just wasn't very good but um, there's a risk averse nature in television and radio I've noticed which is and media established media is you know, why give a lot of money to not necessarily to pay me but to put a show on 
um, to someone who's not known at all, and it might be a big success, but it's just as likely to be a massive failure when we can just give it to the same olds yeah. and probably not have a huge win, but won't have a huge loss. You know, it will be so. You know, in the footy world, there's a reason why. Um, I'm just picking names at random, not to say they're good or bad, but you know, there's a reason you'll always like Billy Brownless will always have a job or Frawley or whatever because they're not a big risk. They're not necessarily going to have the huge upside of, you know, when they tried something new ages ago with, say, someone like from radio, like with Hamish and Andy or something that had a huge upside in the end and they were a bit new and it wasn't, they weren't sure. But but they're not going to also turn in terrible numbers and real, and people get sacked because they made a back, a, you know, they pick someone from left field. So there's a bit of that in I found in trying to, like, talk to the media and stuff about what they want to do. They're always like, yeah, but, you know. <laughs> There's a safety to it, no, which I, I kind of understand. It's all incentive setting, right? It's not. Yeah, I, that was the first thing I was thinking when I saw the pilot. It's just, um, it's sort of like in cinema these days, because you know, um, I'm a bit of a, I'm a value investor on the side, and I like to look at undervalued companies. I was looking at Disney, Walt Disney, mm. and it just made me realize, like in now in movies, it's really only big name producers. Or franchise films yeah. that are being made, really. Yeah. Um, and then you've got art house stuff. But then most most of the other stuff is either being made into a TV series. Yeah. And that's how people are getting on. Yeah. Or um, or they're, they're just going to YouTube. But isn't that like every successful business? Like the way I see businesses working is someone comes up with usually fairly creative, but sometimes by accident or just right place, right time, someone comes up with a business model for something. And so, you know, it might be for the banks originally years ago, hundreds of years ago or it might be for Kodak Film when it first started all that. They, they create a new business model and that business model works. So then it makes a lot of money. And then a good business model tends to just go along until – Outside things change. So yeah. technology changes or usually it's often technology or it's um it's it's um uh it might be regulatory change or something means they like with the cigarette industry, suddenly you just can't do what you used to be able to do or something. So that can sometimes curtail it. But most of all, most business models work really well and then you just need people to manage it, not to you don't need innovators. And so they'll go along for, you know, the average company's like 70, 80 years, right? I think life's lifespan, it's not actually that long because then when technology change does come in or regulatory change or a competitor gets organised or something, but it's usually if they're a pretty successful business model there, there might be five or six of companies using that business model, but they tend to dominate the marketplace. They're just managed by people and ma- and people managing something that is already at its heart successful don't want to stuff it up. Yeah, no. That's their job to yeah. keep, it, keep the train on the tracks, not to invent a new mode of transport. And that's why they all hit a brick wall when the technology or something changes because they're not risk takers. These people are not – these CEOs and everything are managers. They're not innovators. They're not – what, they don't think or see things in a crazy light and they find it very hard to let go of the old too and that's why you know you see Kodak go nowhere or Sony famously with the you know had all the bits of the iPod and could never invent it you know so I look at that with creative things too you know like once a creative thing starts really printing money well you're more trying to not stuff up than to 
take risks because that's what success is. Success is you're already successful, so why change? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think um, it's funny you mentioned that because our previous guest, uh, Futurist, would be, he's been dubbed a Futurist, Steve Samatino, was speaking about the same thing and it's mainly, you know, you've got, if you've got this business and you've got this infrastructure, you just don't want to stuff it up, do you? You know, particularly no. if it's if it's doing these beautiful things and if you're the original founder or entrepreneur in particular. Yeah. But in these corporations, by then they're not really around. But you don't want to be, you don't want to be the guy that was the one to blow up um, you know, a certain business. No. And 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 in a deeper level, you're not hired to do that. No. So most boards aren't really as much as they they love to talk about you know head of innovation and all this you know you'd look at the banks in Australia right they they're more determined than they think they even are like even if they wanted to change they can't really change they're hemmed in by regulations history and the global environment you know so they're not big enough to necessarily just go be a huge international bank they're regulated to not do certain things. And that keeps them, but they're all making what six percent return year on year, no matter what happens. You yeah. know, they're just a giant machine to do that, and that's all they're meant to do. And so they can talk about everything else, but that's what they're there to do. And I think that just happens with lots of things. You know, it's human nature. This is we like to, and this is the satirist thing. You, know, you look at it, and you go, we all like to talk certain ways and say certain things, but when you look at the heart of it. These aren't these are bureaucracies in the private sector, and that's fine. But that's what they are. They're not anything different. Yeah, yeah. Particularly bigger companies like that. All big companies. Yeah. Once you get above a certain size, you know that's <laughs> you know that's the way it is. There's no. I mean, governments are in some ways less constrained. They can pivot with public opinion far quicker, actually, than the company can. So you know that's the that's because they can literally make the rules up. So that's where I think is kind of, you know, it's these things that there's so much in life that people think are true and then when you spend five minutes examining it, you realise it's not true at all. Yeah. You know. So tell me this. Do you have any, like, principles or anything that you use when you're writing or riffing something out? Like, I remember reading last week Scott Adams who uh, made Dilbert yep. spoke about um, – I don't know, it's like the five characteristics for a joke or something like that that he always looks for. You know, like he's always looking for two or three of them. I can't remember what they are. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, it might be like something that's familiar and ironic but also ha-ha funny and, yeah. Do you do you look at anything like that? No, I'm not that systematic. I don't, you know, I kind of write and it's something's either funny or it's not. So it's either absurd or ridiculous. You either play something up to the hilt or you you know, deadpan it or something like that. But to me, it's a very natural... I mean, the, the thing about, I think, a lot of things, if you're good at something, it's usually pretty innate. And so I just... This stuff is just how I think. It's not... <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. not a hard... It's not like I've worked really hard on it. I've refined it and sharpened it over time. And I kind of have a sense of if something's funny or not. Yeah. But it's... I'm not one of those people that studied in great detail, like see what that guy did with that joke or see what she, how she set it up like this and then knocked it down. I just – I think I fall a bit more into you either get it or you don't. Um, and I know some people can probably teach themselves to be funny or because their brains might work that way. But to me it's just 
it flows out of my brain as of the way I see the world and then I'll just come up with things. And then while I'm writing, I guess I'm good at pattern recognition. So things will just start to connect and those connections are funny. Yeah. You know, so when you, when you, you know, that you're linking two completely separate things together or, you know, and you suddenly, and then sometimes I go, oh, that's very clever. But it's really just popped into my head. I haven't done any clever work for it. Yeah. It's just the way my brain works and pulling together really disparate pieces of information. So when you're writing, though, like during the week, are you literally just doing it on specific days for each guide? Or yeah. are you like, do you journal or anything like no. that of that? No, I'll sit down on Sunday night and then a bit into Monday morning to write the knee jerk reaction. And then I'll write on. Wednesday night, Thursday, I'll start writing for the – and that that's very easy writing because you've – well, not easy, but you've got a structure. So it's each of the games, so you just have to then link it to the games in some way. Yeah. So so what do you consistently do each week then? Are you – you're obviously watching as many games as you can. Yeah. Um, do you like – are you just reading as much about sport as possible? Yeah, I tend to. I, I do. I find I'm best when I, I'll read a lot of all the sports stuff and I'll read, watch all the games. But then I find with comedy, you kind of want to be a like. I think you need to read a lot that's not about sport and about other things. So I think the more you read, the better you are about the world because the more you find silly things and you can link it to being like certain things, whatever you're writing about. Um, so I think the better read you are and the better you're across like common events and things like that, it is useful because a lot of humour is pulling left field things together um, and or having, you know, coming up with analogies and stuff like that that work really well. So that's sort of you need to kind of always be reading and doing different things, which helps. Yeah. You know, like I often will link football to the workplace. <laughs> Because that's the thing most people are aware of. And when you suddenly link football to the workplace, you realise how ridiculous work, uh, both work and football is. So, for instance, on the weekend, a player kissed an opposition player on the cheek as a bit of a cheeky stunt. And, you know, you couldn't do that at your work. No. <laughs> you know, that's – I think I wrote something like, you know, that usually leads to a meeting with someone with people and culture in their title. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there's all these things in footy that's just – kind of insane and people don't blink because it's in football yeah it's it's nuts like even the tommy bug thing you know the fact that he punched that guy and you do that out on the street and you know yeah. you can be in court and that's the thing about it all like it keep constantly just keeps showing things up for you like the the tom tom bug when he punched callum mills and knocked him out and all that sort of stuff he um you punch him in the face in a game and uh, the you know that that in itself was crazy because the week before another player had just Basha Hooley had punched someone and the AFL had thrown the book at him so there was this big thing you know where stuff that as a satirist you couldn't come up with so when Basha Hooley went to the tribunal his for people who aren't football fans his uh, character witnesses were Malcolm Turnbull and Waleed Ali. So and Basha Hooley is a, a Muslim so you're kind of comparing a Muslim Waleed Ali. And, um, and and the Prime Minister is like, you know, talk back radio dream all mixed into one, you know, like all the hot button issues you could imagine. And that had happened and he'd got th- the book thrown at him and, th- and those character witnesses had not helped him. It was appealed and had not helped him. And so you kind of go, well, that's weird. As a satirist, you couldn't imagine a, a football player 
like the Prime Minister of Australia coming out to do a character reference for yeah. a football tribunal. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, I've just got... Hang on, I'm just going to call Malcolm. Yeah, forget, uh, North, forget North Korea. I've got to gotta get this guy off. And then the next week, Thomas Bug went and punched someone and you're just like, I can't believe this is just silly. Like, they just keep doing things. Well, then on that over that weekend, Danny Green, the boxer, came out who fronts a campaign, a public campaign, about the dangers of... One punch, is, one punch can kill, so people out at nightclubs. And here's the face of that campaign. He came out and said, oh, there was nothing in that punch oh and Callum God. Mills yeah. has got a, a soft jaw. So you just, you know, you're looking at this as from a satirist point of view going, I can almost, this is almost can't be, it's a bit like Trump in the White House. It's almost beyond satire. Like their be- real life is funnier than anything I could come up with. And then we had the multicultural, head of multicultural uh, for the AFL played on the weekend that that weekend punch someone out on the field. So you kind of just keeps getting layers on layers of <laughs> So this is the absurdity of the whole sport. Sports are just you know kind of ridiculous. Yeah. It's hard to yeah, it reminds me of um so so basically you're just trying to take a situation and and by analogy showing how ridiculous this may be in another scenario and then that sort of allows you to examine. Yeah, well, that's one style of what I'll do. You know, sometimes there's just a really obvious joke, you know, <laughs> so you will just – and it's not necessarily even that clever where you'll just make some, you know, silly comment. And other times it's, yeah, you know, like you, some some of the best pieces are when you're kind of angry about a situation and think it's unfair or, you know, that that kind of is often the better stuff. But, you know, that stuff's not happening all the time. Yeah. Um, so you come up and sometimes you – and look, some weeks it's not – there's not that much funny going on, so you have to kind of manufacture it almost, you know, <laughs> come up with funny lines or talk about something unrelated to the football almost, you know. Who who then um, – because you spoke about reading outside of this certain field. Who mm. – what outside influence do you look to most? You know, like what do you like reading in particular, I mainly read non. Oh, I really only read, which probably shows lack of intelligence on my part. But I only really read non-fiction. I don't really read much of fiction. I used to read a lot, but I don't anymore. I don't know why. But I tend to read lots of history, science books. Um, you know, I I just constantly have a few books on the go, um, and I'm always reading those. And I'll just find bits in that that will sort of spark things in me for you know a football idea or a you know something like that that will sort of you know so you end up talking about in a football column about the heat death of the universe or something <laughs> you know and drawing an analogy like that or something so you know but that kind of is fun to kind of broaden it out you know and and, and add other things that are a bit more left of center yeah as a um a comedian and satirist who what do you find absolutely I mean, we spoke about before the workplace and the AFL. What do you find absolutely ridiculous about the AFL and the whole media circus? Well, the the AFL and sport in general is interesting because in Victoria, especially, it's like it is the state religion. As much as mm. people pretend it's not, if you you know, I imagine not being an AFL fan in Melbourne is a bit like not being a Christian in Texas. <laughs> so it doesn't matter how devout you are. Just not being one is weird. Um, so you can even say, I quite like football and I watch it a bit, but I don't have a team. And people go, what? They just don't understand you. 
but you can say someone say who do you barrack for and you, you know and this can be this can be in a board meeting or on the street you know it doesn't matter who what social economic socioeconomic thing if you someone says oh who do you barrack for and you say oh, I'm a Carlton supporter but I don't really watch it and I'm not really that into it people go oh Carlton supporter hey you know like really they've sort of They've, they've mapped you out as yeah, an individual. Yeah, or... you know, you're kind of in the club even though even though if you, it's like saying, well, I'm Catholic but I never go to church and I'm not that interested and people go, oh, he's a good Catholic, you know. Like it's kind of that thing. It's like you're, you're part of our group now even if you don't really want to even be in it. Um, yeah, and It's funny when someone tells you they're a Collingwood supporter and they're not really a bogan but all of a sudden they just become a little bit more bogan. Yeah, and you tease about things and sometimes some of them don't even care but people will still tease you about it and go, oh, you lost on the weekend and the person will be like, I don't really care, I don't really follow it that much but that's the way it is in melbourne so it's interesting because it's the all the power structures that um in australia around sport you know our, our sense of identity and you know we're always one bad olympics away from thinking we're you know terrible so it's very tied up in the national psyche it's very tied up in the um what people care about the power structures a whole bunch of things so you're kind of using Criticising sport in Australia is criticising the power structures in a lot of society. And I think the difference is I actually am a sports fan as well, so I'm not like someone coming from the outside going, you're all idiots, sport's pointless. Yeah. Which it kind of is really. I mean, you could say a lot of things are pointless and it's probably one of them. It's They only have meaning because we give them meaning. Yeah. But we do give them meaning and they've got huge meaning. So, you know, it, it's like all powerful things. It's got money. It's got it's got the combination of money, uh, quite a lot of money. Not insane money like people. It's not as rich as people think. You compare it to like the mining industry or the health industry, or something, it's not actually that much money. But it's big. You know, it's a big billion dollar industry. And then on top of that, though, really, it's got the power over media, power over. It's got the attention of the public. It's got the glamour. It's got the power that all comes with it. You know, you're if you're a footballer of well-renowned, you can walk into almost any room in Melbourne. People will have you. Boards will want you to come in and talk to them. Yeah. Like it's completely weird. You see grown men who are in their 50s at the football at a football event cross the room to get a photograph or a selfie or an autograph with a 20-year-old. Yeah, it's, And it's, you just go, that's just weird. It, like it's, it, to me that's just so bizarre. But, yeah, there's so many things about it, isn't there? Like I'm, I'm, and I'm a, a sports of, fan. I think yeah, that's bizarre. Same. I'm, I'm a tragic St Kilda supporter, and um, I just find it amazing how people can just admire a 20 year old who's done nothing but other than being drafted with the first pick. Yeah, you know, or it, just little things like how they still call each other the boys. Yeah, there's <laughs> heaps of things. It's all, and the, and I mean, I I constantly find things strange about it that we. So, you know, when the Essendon saga was going on about all the uh, supplement injectors, people were saying, these guys are just kids. And some of them were like 28 years old. Yeah. You know, like it's – and they were all just saying, oh, it wasn't their fault and all this. And you're sort of like, well, I'm not saying they're the main – but they've got to have some culpability in it. Yeah, you know, like, and And to me, being 28, you're not a kid. Yeah. I, I found that bizarre how that was sort of a – an excuse. It's like you signed a contract. Yeah. You should probably get your manager or a lawyer to look at anything first. Yeah, and just, I mean. Not just blindly trust the yeah. club, you know. And the, and the fact that even now people, a lot of people, including the AFL, are still willing to kind of pretend that that was, it wasn't really real. Didn't, yeah. when, you know, like. 
those Chinese and Russians are terrible drug cheats, but we're not, you know. And, you know, if you put that as a, uh, you know, if that was the Chinese soccer team, this exact same thing happened. The Australian press would be going nuts. Yeah. It's funny, though, because, I mean, I, I see the AFL sort of similar to the UFC. It's, it's, it's not just a game, it's a brand. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's a corporation at the end of the day that yeah. is there to make money. Well, yeah, it, it, it's there to protect itself. Yeah. You know, it's there to – and that's fine. Like, I mean, the thing with most of life is very rarely, but, you know, these are all – like we were talking about stuff. if you look behind the – if you look through what everyone's saying, all the decisions are completely rational if you set the incentives. I'm a, I'm a big believer that humans behave based on incentives, mm. often seen and unseen, and we pretend we're not. But, you know, it's like someone who works as a journalist then goes starts working for a corporation as their comms director. They suddenly start saying, oh, these journalists, you know, they're too intrusive and they don't listen. And, you know, like it's that point of view thing, you know, like people go from working in a union to in-house or vice versa, you know, like it depends who you're working for. I've seen it happen time and time again where people's whole perspective change. You go, oh, I remember you being – and they're like, no, no, I've now that I work over here, this is the – you know, and so people do that all the time. And incentives are set up to – you know, in, incentives are set up to make people – behave that you know people behave certain ways we react to them more than we think and there's money to be made and there's you know that's all the things that people do it's not particularly you know hard to figure it out if you just see past what everyone's saying yeah one of my favorite investors is a bloke named charlie munger he uh, warren buffett's partner. warren buffett's partner yeah. he always speaks about incentives and the carrot yeah and uh he always uses an example with fedex and i just i don't know why because it, it was so specific, but it was along the lines of they change, they couldn't get all the packages out, so they changed the incentive that um, they would pay them by each shipment. And what happened was that they would just not do the ship shipment properly. They just find ways to do it way quicker. And they, bro- what happened was all the half the packages were broken. Yeah. So, um, yeah, incentives definitely matter. Yeah, and I mean, if you're working at the AFL, it's not in your incentive to not protect the brand you know that's the whole thing and you're trying to do the right thing all the time and but that's where people make mistakes yeah you know they sort of but i mean people often don't want to hear the truth either so it's often hard to to talk truth to power or something which is where comedy often can be the circuit breaker there was that great quote in um michael lewis's um book who's a great writer michael lewis he wrote moneyball and um the big short in the big short he's got a lines and the truth is like poetry and everyone hates poetry <laughs> and it's true you know like most people don't want to hear the truth they don't most people don't want to you know majority of people don't want to believe that the AFL players aren't heroes they don't want to know that they're some of them are awful yeah. but you know they don't really want to know that they want to you know and that's constantly borne out by the way the you know people carry on. Now, speaking of the truth, um, I would pair Melbourne and St Kilda in the same basket when it comes to premiership glory. Right. <laughs> what uh, what aspirations can we have as hopeless uh, supporters? Oh, you know some. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, the trend's not good. It's not. You know, I keep waiting for. Melbourne to turn the corner being a Melbourne supporter and um, I look at it and we're sort of 
you think this year we're suddenly going to have a real, people talking about us potentially win the premiership and then we turn in performances where we keep losing and I think, oh, God, we could go on a tear and lose five and miss the finals altogether. So who knows? I mean, it's a nightmare. Yeah. It's a nightmare that from which you never wake up. I, I do think, just looking at Melbourne from afar, I think that if they continue going as they are and they can maybe get another high-round draft pick, they'll, they'll be up there next year. Yeah. They're just a young team. Possibly. I worry for St Kilda though. I know. I was worried about <laughs> I thought you guys were going to be a lot better this year, but, you know. Nah, we've got no... We've got no um, a grade midfielders. Yeah. I can't. I can't name one other than Jack Stephen. Yeah. Or yeah. maybe maybe Seb Ross, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's 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 a sad thing when you come so close <laughs> in two thousand nine and ten as well. Yeah, no, it's br- following a team is brutal yeah. unless you're a Hawthorne supporter. It's just constant milk and honey. Yeah. What, what do you think about that in itself? I find it sort of amazing that. I was saying this to my partner the other day because she's her her dad's a Melbourne supporter, not right. not a massive supporter. Yeah. Um, and and she she just doesn't really care. And I was just sort of saying to her that you sort of have to be indoctrinated at a very early age to just be so focused on this sport. Oh and, yeah, and devout because it's 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 impossible to change teams. Yeah, you're not allowed to change teams, but also like it completely makes no sense. Yeah, I mean. Melbourne have not won a premiership since 1964 and in most of my lifetime have been right rubbish and in the last 10 years have been really horrible, like depressingly so. So, you know, any other – if this was a business or anything else, you just wouldn't follow it anymore. (laughs) It just makes no rational sense for me to have any emotional investment in that. And then when you think about it, what do I care if – 22 blokes that I don't even know on the weekend can't win a game of footy. Yeah. Like, why should I care? So it is in its heart a, an insane thing to be into, you know. Like, there are things where it's, you know, it's community or it's all these things. It's an outlet. And all that, but really, it's nonsense. So why do you think we care so much? I think you're indoctrinated. I think it's like all things from religion to things. It, it's got meaning, meaning because we all give it meaning. Yeah. I mean, that's... <laughs> That's like everything pretty much the great the great thing that humans can do is ascribe you know ascribe a deeper meaning to something and all agree that it's true uh when it's not yeah. so we all believe in money we d- d- money doesn't really even exist it's they don't even hold the gold that is cl- you know close to the amount of money there is out there we just all have this sort of agreement to believe that it's true <laughs> we do i mean yeah. it's there's nothing more than belief holding money together yeah uh i would argue not being religious religions the same you know like we all choose to believe it and so some of the uh you know there's other things that uh, you know religion's easy to attack for a lot of people and say well that's all just made up but there are other things that are all made up in life that you know people who are not religious believe in like human rights i mean why do human rights exist except we all decide yeah. that we agree in well, various human rights? They don't, do they? <laughs> well, they don't in a they don't in a like a sense like physics exists. Yeah, gravity exists in a in a social sense, maybe, but yeah, not yeah. A- well, they they exist because we all give them meaning because we realise that they play a role in stopping us all killing each other. <laughs> so you know, footy is like a, a small thing of that. Of we all put belief in it because it's 
you know, fun at its heart. And then on top of that, it's got long cultural meaning in Melbourne, Perth and Adelaide and various things. And it's entertainment and it's all these things. So, you know, and it's and, and it's more fun. It's like, you know, you can have skin in the game in something by the gambling or putting money into it or something, or you can put emotion into it. Yeah. And we all just put our emotion into it. <laughs> Definitely. What, what do you want to get out of doing this? What do you hope for Titus O'Reilly? Uh, well, I mean, I had a, I did have a very conscious decision about three or four years ago, no, about three years ago when this started to go well for me. So it started to grow slowly and then it started, you know, you keep having step changes and gradual growth of popularity and you start doing things like doing radio or TV or getting a book deal and all these sort of things that... It, it 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 sort of you know life is just your experiences so you can sort of it's hard to imagine things that you haven't experienced because you don't know how they work sometimes and so if you've never you know seen the top of a company you don't know it's hard to imagine that how that works or of how top level politics works or something and it started to dawn on me that you know I could do creative things and pitch them to people and they might actually do them so like the book or so then you just start to think, well, I started to think, well, I'd love to in a few years like all my job was was creative stuff. That was my sort of first aim of, you know, to make my money but also just my livelihood and spend my days. I mean, the money is one thing but it's really to step, spend my days. If someone gave me the money tomorrow, I wouldn't have to worry about the commercialisation bit. But the commercialisation stuff is to stop me having to do a proper job <laughs> and just be creative all the time, which I really enjoy. So, you know, that was my first step of what I want to get out of is be able to do um, – be able to make my living off being creative. Um, and then from that you start to think, well, what are the creative things you'd like to do? So, you know, um, the – there's some basic things I like, you know, I do, but then the book was a big thing for me to actually produce a book. Um, and then I've got ideas for things like TV scripts and things, and some of them are not even sport-related. You know, one idea I've got is not even humour-related. Really? Yeah. So, you know, but that might be – so you start to think, well, if I manage to at some point sell my book and then if the book goes well, I can write other books, and then if, you know – you build a name where people buy your books, you can be a bit more creative in the book you write. So, if, you know, the f the first one, if I'd gone off and written a romance novel under the Titus O'Reilly thing, people would go, what? That makes no sense. So, you know, I've written a history of Australian sport, which I wanted to write, but it also fits, I guess, on brand. But the more popular you get in being able to produce things of a quality, certain level of quality, it's a lot easier than pitching down the track. Well, I'd like to do a fiction book or I'd like to do a this or I'd like to turn this into a script and suddenly if you've got runs on the board of success and you've met people who do these things you can do it so it just opens that all up yeah so you're just you. going to take it as it comes essentially oh uh, I, I think so I mean I've got about five projects in my head that I would like to get done over the next however long and so you know so it's not completely these days now that it, yeah i've become more serious about it it's gone from being completely made up as i go along to a more thought out process um and you start to have ideas and then it's just getting to them 
because you suddenly, you know, writing a book takes up a lot of time, doing a stand-up tour takes a lot of time. So, you know, my next month is just writing the stand-up tour. So you kind of don't have time then to write other stuff. And writing the book was like last nine months. So that's sort of, you know, that's what you're putting your energy and focus into. Yeah. So, you know, it limits you over time a bit too. Would you have changed any of the pathway that you've had over the last since you since you started really um not necessarily i mean i i don't know if i could have i mean it sort of came through i mean it came through sort of serendipitous it was sort of through its own way it wasn't a carved out one i don't know how i'd have done it sort of differently my only if i ever have any regrets it's that i didn't start doing this 10 years ago <laughs> you know that's my real kind of regret you know to to not have probably got it done all this earlier but you know maybe i wouldn't have been as good or i wouldn't have had the insights or whatever you know if i'd started i don't know but that's the one thing i sometimes think you know i I wish i'd started earlier yeah you know was it in the back of your head 10 years ago no i remember being at school and liking writing funny things and sometimes thinking it but i don't know if i just didn't have the confidence or didn't really think about it enough like I think sometimes you don't think about things because they're not front and centre. Like it's amazing to me how many people become what their families have been. So if you're around footballers and your dad was a footballer, the amount of people that become footballers. And if you're around comedians and they're, you know, a lot of people. You know, there's that thing because you, can, you yeah. see it and you see how it works and you kind of are attracted to it or, you know, there's probably psychological things as well of wanting to impress your uh, family and friends or your dad or something. Yeah. But well, m- maybe you just didn't have, you know, the patterns that were there to culminate all together. You know, maybe it was just that you got to think, like you put this stuff out when you first started on social media, so maybe – if you hadn't have had that as a trigger, you you wouldn't have pursued it, you know. Or maybe if the the lack of response ten years ago, you you know, to the original analytical piece, you would have just thought, oh, okay, that's just because there's not many people on as many people on the internet. Who knows? Yeah, well, I think that's the completely true. I think you know, you don't. I don't think if social media would I have ever tried it or got to the point. May probably not. But because the other thing too is sometimes, like in life, it's not that things are going badly like I had a career and it was going really well so I didn't really I wasn't sitting there going I wish I was doing comedy because I was flat out yeah (laughs) so I think some comedians it's like some comedians I meet they have nothing else they could do you know they can barely dress themselves (coughs) sorry but they have a terrific view on the world you know and others but there's probably a lot about people out there could do comedy but if you're working a job and it's going terrifically well and you're getting maybe paid well or people like you or you even enjoy it, you know, that's what happens often in life. Like you get – you you could have lived a hundred different lives probably. Yeah. And you kind of – so it's not always negative reasons of why. It wasn't like I was sitting there going, I'd love to do stand-up comedy but I'm too shy. I, I just – had other stuff on and it, I didn't have that necessarily have that drive instantly to do it. Yeah. You know. Um, weary, getting wary of uh, time and your time, I want to jump into some quick questions that yeah, we asked sure. all guests. Do you have any sort of morning ritual? Not really. I mean, I tend to, 
I, I tend to do more of the creative stuff in the morning and then by afternoon I tend to do more, I guess, business side of things, so invoicing or responding to emails or things like that. So, yeah, that's my main thing. You tend to, I tend to be better in the first half of the day. You just get tired. It's amazing doing creative writing and comedy how much it actually weirdly tires you out. Yeah. Um, what about you mentioned before? You don't do any journaling. Do you? You don't meditate or anything like that, do you? No, I'm like a complete, like hopeless person in every way. I've no good <laughs> habits, really. Um, you know, I, I always liked that joke. How would you describe yourself in three words? Lazy. Because <laughs> I am like that in some ways. Like I'm, I tend to be either a hundred percent motivated on something or not at all. I'm not. You know what I mean? I, I, I kind of either really want to do something, and I think I'm a strong-willed person. And the problem sometimes with strong will is it, as much as it enables you to do some things, it makes it hard to do things you don't want to do. Yeah. Because you tend to have the strong enough will to stop you. Say, so I'm just not doing that. Yeah, the you, you're just you're so put off by it that you just can't yeah. bring yourself. To so I don't, you know, I kind of stumble through a lot of life and don't really have any. I, I think the problem it comes down to, if you, I'm not a believer, so I don't really. I tend to be very literal, so I don't really do many things unless they're sort of instantaneous, or I, you know, I'm not really good at sort of committing to like long-term routines or anything like that. (laughs) So things are quite binary for you. Yeah, pretty much. And I'm also, I'm incredibly boringly simple. So I don't, you know, I I kind of, I'm very self-contained. As long as I've got, I can write and I've got a book and all that sort of stuff, I'm pretty happy. Yeah. So I'm not... I'm I'm a ridiculously content person. I shouldn't be so content, but I am. And because of that, I don't have this drive of trying to prove anything or do much. <laughs> uh, I wish I could borrow some of that. Yeah, so I'm sort of generally like, yeah, everything's fine, everything's good. So, yeah. you know, um, that's how I am most of the time. So I'm not driven to do lots of things. Mm. Do yeah. you – have you found that you learnt any particular lessons from either of your parents – Growing up, whether whether it was indirect or directly, like maybe they told you or uh, I mean, you, probably everything. I guess I don't know. If, I don't think mine were very. They weren't. I think they just behaved a certain way. They weren't very much of sitting you down and giving you like, you know, here's life's rules or you know here's a here's a a story that will teach you something at the end or anything. I don't think they were like that, but. You know, they always had a sense of humour though and were always pretty, yeah, I think my humour comes from them. They're not a dissimilar sense of humour. Okay. So I think that, you know, we were always a family that made fun of a lot of things. (laughs) Do you have any particular fond memories of taking the piss out of things? Um, Oh, I always, I mean, it's such a, it's like, you know, fond memories of breathing. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like it's taking the mickey out of everything was kind of always... The way it was not just both with my family and me. It's not that's not a new thing. In fact, a lot of what I'm doing is just stuff I'd always have said. Okay. Just before social media, I would have been screaming it into the abyss, <laughs> or saying it to two mates who would have all heard them before. If um, if you could have 
If we gave you a billboard anywhere, I could get you a billboard anywhere in Melbourne. Yes. And it could say anything. <laughs> anything at all. Anything at all. Where would it be? But it can't be promotional, by the way. Well, I can't I can't do a branch <laughs> feel right now. Where would it be and what would it say? Oh, I'd have put it at the MCG and it would say stop losing and have a picture of Melbourne. <laughs> Good. I like that. Um <laughs> what um what seems so obvious to yourself that you, you're always telling people and they're just perplexed by? Oh, my favourite one that I learned working in business is the more someone talks about culture, <laughs> the worse that person is around culture. <laughs> yeah. Every company and everyone who's at work and people talk about, oh, it's really important we have a culture of collaboration or something. That person is always the worst collaborator <laughs> because normal people just do it. They don't talk around like they don't talk around. Let's be, let's not be horrible to each other. Yeah. So you know, there's this huge. There's often things in life like the more someone talks about it, the the less they're doing it. It's sort of like they've been told in their um in their annual review as a staff member. That you've yeah. Got, you got to be more collaborative. <laughs> yeah. Or they just it gets rolled out like they talk about culture pillars or something uh-huh. like they're incredibly exciting and. You know, so I always find that interesting. The person who always does those warm-up exercises, you know, at their conferences, those team-building exercises, the person that participates that in the most is always the worst team person (laughs) when you're actually at work. My my partner, she works at one of the big four consulting slash, you know, advisory firms. Mm. And, uh, yeah, they've got all sorts of offices with uh, culture and... Not workplace, but something along those lines, yeah. like talent and all that. And it's always quite amusing. No, they've got they've got an ethics officer. Yeah, it's sort of amusing how they have to drum all this stuff into people's heads. Yeah, it's sort of bizarre. Yeah, you'd have to. They're sort of fighting themselves all the time. Yeah, because they have incentives that are set opposite, and then they have to <laughs> then have something to tick a box to say they're caring about this stuff. What um. What are you reading at the moment? Oh, I'm actually reading a history of human evolution. Okay, which is um, interesting. Have you read *Sapiens*? Yeah, I've read *Sapiens*. I've actually just got a start. I've started it and haven't finished it. Is second. Ah, uh, uh, *Homo Deus*. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just started reading that one as well. Yeah, so. I'm. I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah, *Sapiens* is a, one of my favourite books. Actually, I've read oh, in recent it's, times. It's I'd say, I mean, I've got a pretty good collection because I'm reading every night. I, ma- I just make sure I read for an hour every night and mm. I can get through about a book every fortnight. I-, I would honestly say that's probably the best book I've ever read. Yeah, yeah. It was right up there for me too. I, yeah. It just, I mean, that's a guy who's just cut through all the nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's literally filtered all of the bullshit and distilled it down. Like, sort of like a scientist v- just viewing any species. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I found that... Very amusing because, you know, I've got friends who sort of, they, they work in areas that are a bit fluffy mm. and you give them this book and it's sort of just, not ground, they're already quite grounded, but mm. it just gives people perspective. Yeah, but I think the funny thing about the, the fluffy people is you also find the same um, at the top of companies. Yeah. To be at the top of a company, you have to be a true believer, you know, or at least be really good at faking <laughs> being a true believer. So you have to pretend or believe, believe is easier, 
because you can only pretend for so long, uh, you have to believe that the companies are doing amazing things and that you've got an innovative plan for the way forward and the new culture plan is changing the way you do business. And you have to actually believe this stuff and parrot it yeah. regularly. Um, and that's that thing you kind of and, – and the broader group want you to do that. Yeah, they want to They follow. find it weird. If, if you're the one going, well, hang on, we're actually not changing the culture at all because – this guy's doing this and she's doing that and we're all passive aggressive. You're not, even if you're 100% right, you're not really welcome for long. Yeah. No, you see that a lot at, um, you know, from that real evangelist type at the Silicon Valley type company. I think about like Elon Musk. Yeah. Um, I, look, I, I respect Elon Musk a lot, but at the end of the day, he's running two companies that don't make any money. Yeah, yeah. And I, so I find, um, you know, I find that very intriguing to to see certain leaders and the way that they can drive people to believe in this absolutism of of what they're doing and yeah. the way that they're doing it. Yeah, well, everyone's just looking for a a, a messiah, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you have you had any? What's your best purchase in the last, let's say, two years under two hundred dollars? Under two hundred dollars. Ah. Probably my battery portable battery charger. <laughs> God, isn't that a reflection of the time? Well, I'm always <laughs> tweeting, so it's all you know. So my phone gets run out in about an hour more often than not. So, really? Yeah. And what phone are you using? That's an it's iPhone. It's an iPhone, and just but I've had to turn notifications off. But I'll often have you know, I'm often on there tweeting a lot. But then I'll often have you know, in a normal hour, I'll have you know, sixty, seventy plus notifications, so it's just God. constantly churning over. Yeah. Um, no, that's probably a bit sad that that would be my... I mean, books, I spend all my money on books. I'm not very material anymore. You know, I don't really buy much apart from... All I want for Christmas from people is books. Um, you know, I like having a good TV and a few things but and a good computer and all that, but apart from that, yeah, you know, I live so much of my life writing now. Um, that's been the one big change of doing this all the time. You know, most of my time is actually spent writing. Yeah. So the amazing thing about it being such a solitary thing, but also while you're writing, you can't do much else. So there's not a lot of point in having a lot of other things. You're not watching movies that much. You're not doing. You know what I mean? So yeah. do you do you watch many like TV shows or anything like that? Yeah, I, I do, but I kind of have to really set it aside, and there'll be weeks where I just won't be able to get to it. Really? Yeah, because yeah. I'm just writing. Okay. Um, last question for you. If if TEDx Melbourne called you up tomorrow and they said, "Hey, we want you to to do a talk, but it mm. just can't be on AFL mm. or sport in general," right? What would you talk about? And do I, does it have to be linked to me in any way, or is it just a topic that interests what, me? Whatever you want. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'd have to. Do, I don't know what I'd do. I'd probably do something about. I'm trying to think what would be the thing I'd do. I'd probably do something on the the ridiculous about what we but the differences between what we say and what we do. That's the situation. That's the thing that, you know, amazes me most of all. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a good one. That's the thing that I'm constantly that's at the nub of most of what I think about. <laughs> now, if people want to find you, they want to get in contact with you, they want to find your stuff. Yep. Where's the best places to go? Titusoreilly.com 
is okay. the best one. So uh, if you Google Titus O'Reilly, it will come up top. So that I'm um, Twitter under at, at Titus O'Reilly too. So are you most ac- active on Twitter or Facebook? Or? Uh, I used to be way more active on Twitter. Twitter, I think, has changed a bit recently. It's not as you know. I still enjoy it a lot, and it's good when there's live stuff happening or various things. But I th- don't think it's quite what it is. I've been, but probably most on Twitter. Um, but, you know, writing the book has taken up a lot of time, you know. So, Facebook, I'm still pretty... Facebook just is amazing, the impact of Facebook, even though really? it's not... Yeah, like the numbers on Facebook are, you know, the engagement and the numbers. Like, if you're just going for Joe Public, not, you know, journalists or, um, you know, the cool kids... You know, you get all ages on Facebook. So when I have a gig, and a lot of them will come from Facebook audience, I'll have eighty-year-olds down to seventeen, sixteen-year-olds, yeah, right. male, female, everything. It's a massively diverse audience, and you only really get that on Facebook. Yeah, it's it's, it's just a more. It's not cool or interesting, but it's no, just it's just there, and it's a it's sort of like a utility. Even yeah, Twitter. I find a lot of people struggle with it. Twitter kind of is weird because it's it's disproportionate in its influence because of journo's on it, and you know various people like and professionals and various things like that tend to be on it, and and the the sort of the chattering classes are on it. You know, yeah. um, so it gives you a bit of a false sense of how popular you are or how well known you are or you know you that thing of talking to an echo chamber a little bit or something. Yeah. Um, so that's what Twitter's like. Twitter, I find excellent. Twitter can't be beaten in a live event situation. So if something's happening, whether it's a political event or a sport event or something, it's pretty great to be on Twitter. Facebook's much more like if you want to talk to the general public. Yeah. That's that's everyone. Okay. Um, and then, you know, Instagram's probably skews younger. Yeah. You know, Snapchat even more so. So they're all... They're all different, you know. They all—they're all just tools for a different thing. Yeah. Do you have any last requests for our audience and for your own listeners as well? Um, not really. <laughs> I don't me. have. I don't have a big. Uh, oh, follow me or don't. <laughs> uh, you know, human subjective. So uh, I'm constantly having people tell me I'm not funny. Um, and others tell them I am. So, you know, you'll fall into one of those two buckets. Yeah, I can say, look, if, if you like sport, you're pretty funny. Oh, so. thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. It's been no a real problem. Treat. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you for making it this far. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like the episode, maybe consider leaving us a review. Just head to the web, search iTunes or Stitcher. When you get to that, go Uncommon Neural, and it'll be the first podcast available. Maybe as well consider signing up to the newsletter. I think about 90% I last checked of our subscribed listeners are on the newsletter as well. Uh, From there, you'll get show notes, priority access. You'll be the first to know when an episode is live. Head to neural.com slash podcast and fill in your details there. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat or Instagram. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.